everyone for joining us for today's episode of the RFI Group Global Digital Banker podcast. My name's Anna. And I'm Kate. And on this week's episode, I interviewed Joe McGuire from MyMy, a fintech based in Malaysia. Um, and we're talking a lot in that interview about financial inclusion, as well as what it's like to build a, a, a digital only bank. Um, but what we thought we would do is we'd start off talking a little bit about financial inclusion, why we think it's important, and also the, some of the data that we've seen over our time working at RFI. Um, and I know Anna is very interested in financial inclusion. It's very much a passion of hers. I think something interesting when thinking about digital banking is also the role of traditional banking, because I think that's something we've been looking at in RFI group, RFI group research quite a lot, where we're thinking about to what extent are branches still relevant? You know, in regional areas, they often close branches um, because of funding or because, you know, banks are focusing on other things. And you find that there can sometimes be this unintended consequence where there actually is a segment of the market that really relies on that branch. So if you think about an older customer who's been going to the same branch for years and years and years or someone who doesn't speak English and really needs someone, you know, to speak to one-on-one um, or even just in areas where, you know, there isn't that many ATMs or customers aren't as, you know, digitally included. And I think digital inclusion is another area that's really worth thinking about when we talk about financial inclusion because inclusion itself encapsulates you know financial inclusion is one thing but you've got education you've got health and you've got digital as well so I think something I'd be really uh, something I'm really looking forward to you know hearing from your interview today is um, what does Joe McGuire think about this role of a digital bank particularly in Asia where you know the the inclusion space is different to Australia it's different to other markets as well so uh, what are you what are you really looking forward to about that interview today? Yeah, I think that digital inclusion piece is, is a really interesting point. Um, I spent a couple of years working in our UK office and, and looked at some of our Asia data there. And one of the things that hadn't really occurred to me before I did that was the fact that in even in really developed countries um, in Asia, there still is massive numbers of people who are overbanked. Being an Australian, you just kind of don't think about that as still being an issue. But um, even in you know other countries that are very developed, there is still the massive proportion of people who don't have access to banking services and the advent of um, or the wider availability of smartphones really means people do start to have access to those products that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and we're now seeing in, in some of those Asian markets really leapfrogging in terms of technology um, evolution or you could probably say revolution. So people going to things like WeChat Pay and Alipay and really bypassing uh, more traditional payment systems. So I'll be really interested to hear what Joe has to say about about that topic and about how we're seeing um, that evolve in in Malaysia and in Southeast Asia in general. I love this idea of overbanked as well because I think especially, you know, at RFI Group, all of us are basically testing banking products whenever they come out. I know every time there's a new neobank, all of us download it immediately. I think I've got about six at the moment and it's you know, there's, there's no, we just do it to see what it's like. And I think we've got such access to so many different types of banking products. You know, you can download any kind of app that you need. There's different PFM tools, you know, personal financial management tools we can access. There's aggregation services we can access. There's um, traditional banks and non-banks and all types of products. And it's so different in other markets where, you know, uh, the way they engage with these apps is quite different or even in something like in Asia where mobile is really important. I know there's WeChat Pay, there's all kinds of other ways of making payments that maybe we're not doing here. But I think this idea of the role of digital is something that we continue to talk about um, in just how that differs per market, but also how digital can increase inclusion as well. 
Yeah, you're right. We, we think here about digital and neobanks as being these new fancy additional banking products and services are offering really, um, really new uh, tools, but in other markets, it's it's not that. Is they're providing really basic access, and um, you made the point earlier um, when we were having a chat about the the importance of having access just to a bank account and the fact that some people don't have that access and having the ability to store money in a safe and secure way um, makes such a difference. And even um, I was reading something a couple of years ago about one of the reasons why cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has exploded is because it's a store of value that doesn't rely on a banking system um, and that doesn't rely on on you know, holding physical assets like gold as well and can be accessed cross-border, um, which given what's happening in cryptocurrency at the moment um, is sort of an interesting topic. Um, but yeah, that that sort of way that digital and, and technology has evolved to allow people to access services and, and banking in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think even, like you said, the importance of a transaction account, you know, once you've got a transaction account, then you have a place you can store money. That sounds so simple for all of us who, you know, maybe got our first bank account, either had one set up when we were kids or, you know, had one set up when we actually... Um, got our first job and we start having income coming in. And once you've got that transaction account, it means you can um, you can store savings, you can make payments, you can even, it's a pathway to the next financial products as well. And I think that's something that I've spoken to people about um, when we really deep dive into inclusion is when you have a transaction account, it means you can also get other banking products. Whereas if you think about people who don't have a transaction account, how are they supposed to get a loan? How are they mm. supposed to access credit? And yep. I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind as well. And even just the the luxury of choice that we have to be able to choose Absolutely. a bank account that doesn't have fees, that doesn't um, that allows us to take money out of, of whatever ATM we want um, without having a, a financial disincentive to that, um, where you're struggling with financial inclusion, those sorts of choices don't exist. Yeah, exactly. And I think particularly when making sure customers are accessing products that sort of have their best interest in mind as well, you want customers to have products that don't charge them excessive fees and, you know, they really understand the products they have as well. And financial literacy is another area I'm really interested in, but I think it's because it ties in so well to some of these areas as well where, okay, you've got a banking product, but do you understand it? Are the fees predatory? Are they, is it charging you more? Is it charging you for something you don't even realise? Is there something you're meant to be doing that you didn't know? I think that's going to be one of those other challenges where even if you're increasing something like digital inclusion, do customers understand that the products they have, you know, in financial inclusion as well? And I think it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about that in your interview as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I know this is a, a topic we'll come back to in the coming weeks as well. I know you've got some interviews lined up that we'll mm -hmm. also touch on this topic. Um, so please tune in for those following episodes as well. Thanks very much. Let's uh, hand over to Kate with the interview with Joe McGuire. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, why don't we start off with talking a little bit about yourself and your background for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a Sydney boy originally. Uh, moved to Malaysia about three and a half, well, th a little bit under three and a half years to build this business. My career has primarily been in banking. Uh, my last role in banking was running transaction banking for the Commonwealth Bank down in Victoria and Tassie. Um, transaction banking is a bunch of products. It's um, everything to do with cash, cards and payments. So I was fortunate enough to be the youngest person, I believe, to get that role. Um, and to be honest, it's one of the best roles I've ever had. 
but I just had itchy feet being in that role. Um, so after a couple of years there of some really good results, I stepped out of the banking world and joined what was at the time a very small fintech um, as the global head of sales and partnerships. That's a fintech that we all know now in Australia called Airwallex. Um, no longer a small fintech. <laughs> no longer a small fintech. Uh, very proud of what they've achieved over there. Um, and, and while I was at Airwallex again after a couple of years, I think uh, the entrepreneurial bug was was sort of still biting and still growing. Um, and Airwallex gave me a, a really great insight into the realities of fintech. Uh, so that was a really important stepping stone towards building my own business. Uh, and while I was there, um, I came across a World Bank report when I was over in Southeast Asia getting a couple of licenses and corridors set up for the company. Uh, and the World Bank report said that at the time there was 500 million people in ASEAN that had a phone but had never had a bank account. And that to me was a problem worth solving, worth throwing everything into. Uh, so I stepped away from Airwallex uh, to move to Malaysia and build my mind. Which brings us on to what you're doing now. So you're co-founder and CEO of MyMy. Tell us a little bit about the MyMy journey. Yeah, sure. So MyMy has ambitions of becoming an ASEAN-focused digital bank uh, and one of the world's first digital banks that is Sharia compliant. That's a really important, uh, a really important difference between your, your Revoluts and the Monzos of the world. When we were building a digital bank from scratch, we really wanted to build something tailored to the market that we were based in. Uh, and with an um, Islamic population of a quarter of a billion in Malaysia and Indonesia and Brunei alone, um, that was something that we really wanted to make sure we got right. And I think um, there's a couple of topics we're going to be talking about today. So one I definitely want to come back to is how you go about building a digital bank. As you said, there's there's lots of them uh, emerging around the world at, at the moment. So it'd be great to come back to that. But Let's start off by talking about financial inclusion and that stat that you, you mentioned just there. Um, Anna, my co-host, and I were also talking about sort of the, the underbanked and the unbanked and the, the fact that there's still, I think, a billion people who don't have banking products around the world. Mm. Um, so why is financial inclusion an important topic for you? I think that, you know, banking has a really bad rap at the moment, right? Um, certainly since I've been in banking in my career, uh, it's, it's not a comfortable situation to work in an industry that's really disliked. And, you know, I look back at my time at CBA and uh, look in the media, we've all seen that there's one or two bad eggs in these organisations um, and there is some bad practices around the world. It's no escaping that. But over and all, like overall, the people that I worked with were very strong ethically. And I felt like this industry has done a lot for the world's which is out of the limelight these days. And um, you look at uh, the progression of the global economy, uh, the world's progress towards eradicating things like poverty, financial inclusion is one of those really important pillars. Uh, if you take you know, a community where it's very cash-based, let's say you have um, a single mother that's got a small business uh, and you know, we're seeing some great progress with microfinance around the world with those sort of cases, if you don't have a place to store value, let's say you're hiding your cash in your house, um, there's endless stories of people being robbed by someone else in that community. So giving people access to an account where they can save and grow their wealth for the benefit of their family, I think is a really important project. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's one that we're really keen to talk about throughout this podcast series, actually, the importance of financial inclusion. And um, I think as an Australian as well, you often forget that the access to banking that we have here, just it doesn't exist in other parts of the world. Um, which, which brings me on to, I guess, my next question, which is around the specific challenges that you faced in um, in tackling that financial inclusion issue in, in Malaysia, but I guess in, in Southeast Asia more broadly as well. Yeah, I've spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about why ASEAN has lower levels of financial inclusion than Africa, for example. And one of the reasons in our thesis, which we don't think is talked about very much, is actually geography. So you have nearly 10,000 islands in ASEAN that are populated. And only a year ago um, did most central banks adopt the policy to give someone an account online or via their phone, so EKYC. So you think about the challenges of the traditional banking uh, banking organisations to get branches to all of these locations, and, and it's complex. So for us, one of the first priorities was building a really seamless and frictionless but secure EKYC solution so that no matter where you are, provided we can get you some level of connectivity on your phone, uh, you can have a store of value. Yeah, and that rise of sort of smartphones and mobiles is one of those those pieces I find quite interesting. Um, I've I've spent a bit of time looking at sort of our RFI group data into to Asia and um, the role that mobile phones play. I mean, important here in Australia as well, but the the access that they provide in those markets and um, to payments as well is, is is probably a whole other topic that we could go into. That's right. We have to talk about uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, what impact has that had on financial inclusion in Malaysia? Has, has it had any impact for you personally around how MyMai is operating in that market or, or what are the broader impacts on financial inclusion? Yeah, I mean, we've had some delays with it. Uh, you know, not having a regulator that's at the office, like any industry, has slowed that down. But the pandemic has also accelerated... Uh, people's priorities around having access to their customers digitally. So one of the, you know, one of the things that it's brought to the forefront is how a cash-dominant society can struggle when you have no human interaction. And a really good example is uh, a plantation company that we've signed an MOU with in Malaysia. So um, you'll have plantations in really remote parts of the region. And often the workers there are being paid by cash. Now, to a company, that's really expensive. You've got to uh, secure the cash, deliver the cash, make sure that no cash goes missing along the way. Uh, And it's a lot of manpower to to put cash in people's hands and make sure it's done correctly. We estimate it's about 20 to 25% additional cost on top of your wage bill. Now, you, you then throw in a pandemic and... You're not allowed to hand out cash. You're not allowed to meet face-to-face. And they were really struggling with how to pay their staff. So what we've seen is a huge acceleration in people prioritising a digital solution. We had um, some really great successes over the period. We raised Malaysia's biggest seed round from Koperasi Tentara, which is the Army Credit Union in Malaysia. It's a cooperative over here. We were their first technology investment. Uh, And that really came to the forefront of the pandemic when they realised that they needed a means digitally to interact with their members. So it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's been a wake-up call and it certainly accelerated us as a priority for other groups. 
but you know, obviously a horrible situation globally. Yeah, I think that impact on, on digital probably can't be understated. We're seeing that even in a country like Australia or New Zealand, which already have really high rates of digital engagement, just continuing to increase and that shift away from cash, um, an interesting one as well. Um, we'll talk in a moment about your experience of, of building a bank. I'm, I'm very keen to hear how that process has gone for my my. Um, but the other question I wanted to ask you around financial inclusion is is why you think or how you think fintech can better solve that problem for customers and the advantages that a fintech has perhaps over an incumbent provider in in trying to solve that problem for people yeah it's um it's an interesting question there's a lot of ways to tackle it certainly I think the biggest challenge for the 26 odd thousand banks around the world right now is how to cope with legacy infrastructure and how to get the right mix in your staffing. So, you know, when, when, when most of these banks were around, it started on uh, like a very analog process when dealing with your customers uh, and they've all had to adapt with technology moving quickly and they had to adapt with bankers who aren't necessarily technologists. So, I mean, I remember, um, back in my times with CBA, they were very focused on technology investment, but they always were stuck until they did their core banking modernization upgrade with what was like a spaghetti diagram of all of these pieces of sticky tape, plug, you know, concepts plugged in together. So one of the benefits that you have from being a fintech is, uh, first of all, that you're starting from scratch. And it's always been a core uh, value for my mind that we build everything in-house. Because even if you're adopting a core banking product from SAP or uh, a number of the other new core banking providers out there, you're basically just building another bank. You're um, in five or 10 years time going to have legacy infrastructure. You're reliant on your core banking provider when you want to innovate. Uh, anything that you do, which is truly exceptional, it's likely that some of their other, like other customers with that core banking technology will get access to it. So we build everything in-house and maintain that focus on being a technology company first. So I'd say more tech fin than fintech. The other challenge which we see a lot at the moment is that banks still aren't grasping the concept of the right uh, team mix, especially in leadership. So by 2030, I think there's very few people out there that think banks will be anything less than a 99% technology play. And yet how many of these banks are being led by technologists? They're still being led by bankers. And of course, that element is really important. But if you've got a business which is going to be a tech company in eight or nine years and you're not investing in the right staff, it's going to be very hard to keep up. Which I think brings us on to the challenges that you would have faced building a new digital bank from the ground up. Um, what was the biggest challenge that you faced and was there anything that you weren't expecting? Well, look, we face challenges every day. I think... Um, if I were just to distill what I think entrepreneurship is, it's, it's really just problem solving. Uh, so, you know, we, we have some really exciting announcements coming out next week on this front, uh, which I wish I could share with you now, but I'm sure you'll read in the papers soon. Um, but, you know, entrepreneurship is really glorified as uh, something that everyone should think about. And my feedback is it's, it's kind of like telling your kids that they should be a musician, you know, like very, very few people are successful at it. It's glorified as being something that's uh, probably a lot 
less exciting than the reality of doing it. Um, I believe that you should only be building a startup, getting into entrepreneurship if you absolutely have to. For me, this is some. This is a problem that I just couldn't stop thinking about, and it was a problem that I thought was worth risking everything that I had. I sold everything that I owned in Australia before I moved here to build this. Uh, I had two dollars in my bank. Everything was one hundred percent into the company, and so we we constantly face cha- challenges on that space. And if someone were to ask me, you know, should they go into it? My other advice would be don't have a plan B. Otherwise, you will walk away. It's tough. And if you were to start again tomorrow, uh, I guess, what would you do differently? Would you do anything differently? I mean, I've done so many things wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But would I do anything differently? I think if I was speaking to myself three years ago when we're starting this journey, um, the advice I'd give you is just to be patient. Um, You know, ASEAN is, is such a wonderful region in the world. I'd recommend if anyone's looking to start a business that, uh, this is a great place to do it. It's going to be the global like engine of the economy in 10, 15 years. Um, but you've also just got to understand that there's a lot of torrid history in this region. And so taking time to build trust is a really essential thing. People, um, you know, people will always be suspicious of you coming in as a foreigner. My view is I'm coming in here with some great experience that may be lacking in this region in somewhat, and I'm going to use that to help the region. But you've got to understand that people will still look at you suspiciously. And so it takes time to build a good reputation here, to build trust. And it's very much worth it doing it here. I think it's very much worth building a business where you're actually adding value to people's lives as opposed to being focused on making money. Uh, But just be patient. And that leads me very nicely onto my next question, uh, which is, what does success mean to you or how do you measure success at my mind? Is there something that you're aiming for? Look, I think we've got very, um, we've got very like strong plans around what we would like to achieve metrics, et cetera, in the business. Uh, I think for us, it's far less about making uh, money. Um, it's really about uh, delivering something Uh, which people really value and adds value to their lives. So if we can build a solution that people love, that adds value to what they're doing, that helps people in their their daily lives, then that would be a pretty humbling experience to be a part of. Yeah, I think fintech is something I'm really fascinated by and really really like being involved with. I think that having that customer problem and that that focus on making customers' lives better is, is one of the things that really intrigues me a lot about fintech. Um, and the, you mentioned before, you've got some exciting announcements, which you, you can't fill us in on just yet. Um, but is there anything you can tell us about what you're aiming to achieve over the next 12 months or the next couple of years at MyMo? We, um, when we set out to, to build MyMo, we really wanted to build an ASEAN solution. Uh, as we were talking about with the geography, it's, there's, there's a lot of disconnect and ASEAN is in itself 10 very different cultures and very different countries. But based on uh, where everyone, uh, you know, we, we sort of see this as this is sort of the next Europe, you know, like everything's going to be continually integrated and getting closer together. So when we architected our solution, we wanted to make sure that it was very easily deployable in all of the other markets. So if we can provide a level of financial inclusion and connectivity in the region, uh, particularly to regional areas, 
uh, and this is one of the things that I can't really tell you into for the next couple of weeks, but we've got some really interesting concepts and solutions about how we can reach people in really regional and remote areas where there's perhaps no internet right now or very limited internet and how we can help people in the regions that need it most. So if we can make a difference in those areas, then I think that it would be something to be pretty proud of. Sounds great. Um, there's a lot that sounds like it's happening behind the scenes. Really looking forward to hearing more about my mind, your success in the future. If people want to know more, where should they go to find out more about what you're doing? You can register for early access to our beta program um, at my-my.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. It was great chatting to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Digital Banker podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean.